Hello, everybody. This is Shift M Podcast, episode 34. We have a special guest today, Todd Williams, and uh, I will ask him to introduce himself. Hello, everyone. I'm Todd Williams. I'm a, a project manager who's been uh, in the field for a number of decades. I don't think I want to admit how many. I have uh, written a couple of books, uh, Rescue the Problem Project, and most recently, Filling Execution Gaps, which talks about uh, how projects can have problems and how to get around those problems. Uh, the types of problems that we have to deal with, uh, many times people think it's all technology and more often than not, it's people. Even then, quite often, it's not the people on the project. So there's a whole area of things that, that I like to explore and work with. Uh, I continue to consult people and, and with people and companies around the world and enjoy being here. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Um, and the subject of this podcast will be about respect in, in, in project management, which is, which is something we never talked about over the last 33 episodes. And it's quite interesting to, to bring it up because uh, in my experience, like you said, the problems are always on the, on the people side, not on, in most cases, not on technical side. So what do you think in general? Do we need this sort of thing in, in project management, management in general, or it's something personal which we shouldn't discuss in serious project management books and, and articles? Respect, I think. Well, respect is, is extremely important, and probably uh, people first stumble on the fact that they don't respect the capabilities of the project manager. Uh, because maybe the project manager is not a technical person. Maybe you're on a technical project. So you're dealing with a whole bunch of people who are developing something brand new. They have all the best bells and whistles. They know everything about them. Maybe they even help develop those. And a project manager comes along, and of course, that person, be it male or female, doesn't know nearly as much about the technology as the people who are building it. And so there tends to be this, well, why should I listen to you? At the same time, it goes the other direction where the project manager is looking at the people that are working on the project and saying, but you don't understand how this works. It needs to, you need to follow this, you need to do that. And there doesn't seem to be a respect in the other direction. <clears throat> to make matters worse, there's the people around the project, maybe the project management office or the executives or the customer who is frustrated with the overall project and wants to see it run better and they're, and they're maybe losing respect of the team. So it's, it's in many, many directions. You know what happened to me yesterday? I was at the, at the uh, meetup for programmers. There were like 150 people in the room and they were all programmers. And I asked them a question. Who of you think that project managers actually want to do things right and they care about the quality of the software we develop? And maybe 10 people raised their hands. And then oh, everybody really? else, yeah, and then everybody else in the room started to say that the project managers want just things to happen faster. They don't care about quality. That's the, that's the perception, that's the, the opinion programmers have about project managers. So can you comment on that? Well, I can see where that perception comes around. I mean, the project manager is kind of in this bind of trying to make things right versus make things inexpensive, right? They have a budget they have to adhere to. They have timelines they have to uh, adhere to. And we can strive per for, for perfection. And I think most of us know that if we strive per for, for perfection, I have a hard time saying that, 
if we strive for perfection, we will probably never get the project done. So there's this continual balance that has to go on. There's a company out there, a small company that somebody's probably heard of before called Microsoft, and they really made it by not looking for perfection. They really did make it by understanding what was good enough and getting that released. And most of us hated that. I mean, those of us who are old enough to remember things like Windows 3.1 and that sort of thing got really frustrated because it seemed like a product would release and it would just be bug-laden. But they couldn't go for perfection. They, they realized that they had to get things out. They had to get the, the, the top, I don't know, 90% of it working, and they'll work on the other 10% later. So quite a few of us to this day still won't load new operating systems until or new, new versions until Service Pack 1 or 2 comes out. They'll have aged just a little bit like a fine wine. They got quite a bit better. Um, so there's, there is this balance that has to go on. Um, that creates a huge amount of technical debt in, in a software project or even a hardware project that then needs to be turned around and fixed later. That needs to be understood. And I will say pretty clearly that I don't think many project managers fully understand technical debt. And I am most certain that most businesses don't fully understand technical debt and what that means and allotting the time to go back and actually make things right. So the challenge of the project manager now is to work not with the team as much as with the customers and the executives and saying, okay, we can get it out fast, but we have to have this other time to be able to go back and clean things up and get technical debt out of this software. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a battle there. So I, I'm surprised that, um, that there were uh, as many people saying that there was no concern about quality, I think that there's a balance that we have to do where we figure out what the MVP, the most the minimal viable product is, and be able to get that delivered. Um, you know, I think that's really where things need to go. People need to be talking that same language. You're absolutely right about mentioning technical debt. Actually, the meetup yesterday was titled What to Do with the Technical Debt. So, so you, you hit exactly the point which we discussed yesterday. But my question now is why it's happening? Why all of you, well, everything you just described is happening? Project managers are s- stupid or programmers are stupid. So who's making the mistake? I don't think anybody's stupid. I, I think that's the, that's the wrong way to look at it. I'm sorry. If you, if you turn around and look at people's focus and what people really want to do and their drive, they have a focus on certain things, right? If you have kids, you realize now and then that kids focus on something and maybe it's a toy or maybe it's getting in trouble or whatever. And you as the parent want them to go some other direction. Um, Quite a few times that doesn't work very well, right? So you have to, as a parent, come in and, and, and try to get that person coaxed into another direction, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to lure them over, and maybe you have to come, become heavy-handed, but in most cases you can lure them over and lead them in the right direction. And I think that if you are, as a project manager, more open-minded, then you can educate your team on what needs to be done. 
I think the communication is very poor in most organizations in trying to understand what the objectives are and what a minimal viable product is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I don't hear a lot of companies using minimal viable product in the realm that I work. I don't use that term a lot. I try to get things narrowed down to where we're delivering that minimal viable product because I need to get that respect um, mm-hmm. by the people. So as a project manager, I'm always trying to get um, a harmony going on inside the organization. And that usually takes a significant amount of communication. And it, I probably spend 60 to 70% of my initial work on a project at that level, working on both sides with the executives, the customers, you know, the, the, the general stakeholders and the project team trying to get them to understand one another and communicate. And, and I'm basically a facilitator in that process, trying to make things work. I don't, I'm not the conduit. I'm the facilitator. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that, that programmers are not disclosing the full information about the technical debt to their managers because they don't trust or maybe slash don't respect those managers and, and they just don't want to, to, to disclose that information to make it visible. So they just, you know, because they think that project managers anyway will not do any good because they only care about the speed of delivery, only about the final result. So maybe it's better to keep this information to ourselves and just deal with that somehow and, and, and never tell the managers about that. Maybe it's a problem of respect and trust between the management layer and technical layer. Well, again, I don't want to put blame on any one person. Is that a piece of the puzzle? I would agree that that's a piece of a puzzle. Nobody wants to go out and and tell their boss, hey, you know, I did a really bad job on this thing. It works, but it's really sloppy. Uh, that, That doesn't go over well, right? People don't want to say that. So there's that tendency to hide that information. At the same time, there's people over on the business side who don't want to admit that they don't understand what technical debt is. They don't understand that that there's things that need to be fixed later. I usually try to take for the executives, stakeholders, customers, whoever, and use a more physical example of building something and saying, hey, you know, you build a house, you want to have five rooms in the house, but you only got room you know, money for, for three. So you build the two or three rooms that you can't afford and you put in a, a stub wall that just kind of shields things so that in the future you can put in those other rooms. And at some point you're going to go have, have to go back and fix it. Or maybe you don't put in the, the best flooring that you want in the house and you want to go back in a year and put in the new flooring. You have to still budget for that. You still have to allot for that, but you live with the, the downgraded flooring or the, the least, the, the lesser uh, fancy appliances and you'll come back and you'll put those nicer ones in later. Well, that's what we're trying to do with the software is we can get it done quicker and cheaper with this inexpensive method, but it's not going to last for you. It's not going to be as robust as you want. Now let's go back and, and allot the time and schedule the time and budget the time to fix it. That doesn't happen with just me talking on one side or the other. I have 
all the groups together. So I have the, the stakeholder, who is maybe the customer, whoever, and the developers in the same room together. So they hear, it. if I act as a shuttle going back and forth between these two groups, I end up creating distrust because people will say, well, what did he really tell them? Okay, what <laughs> what's he really saying to them, and and what other sleight of hand is he up to? So if I keep it open where everyone can see what's going on, that starts to build respect, not just of myself, but of the other party, because they're starting to hear things, and I'll I will help interpret. I will when someone starts talking techno babble that an executive is not going to understand, then I translate that down so that the executive can understand it. When the executive starts talking about their EBITDAs and every other business term that they want to talk about, I'll turn around and say, hey, wait a minute, guys, don't you understand? There has to be some sort of earnings here that goes on so that you know the company looks profitable, that shareholders and stakeholders or uh, investors are happy. And so how can we meet in the middle? So I'm, I'm working that again as a facilitator to make things happen. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about uh, what is the, so it seems that being the facilitator and being a good facilitator is something which I, if I'm a programmer, will respect in my project manager. Not, I would hope so. I, it uh, works for me. <laughs> because that person doesn't have any technical. I'm, I'm trying to put myself into the shoes of the programmer and thinking about like abstract project manager. And that person is telling me some stories about deadlines and risk analysis and there's a beta, as you mentioned. But my language is completely different. So, exactly. So how am I going to respect that, that person talking some, some gibberish, you know, which I don't even understand. Uh, so I need to somehow believe that, that he or she makes sense. So that's part of that whole translation. That's why everybody's in the same room. They see the translation going on. They see somebody saying something they really don't understand. They don't want to say they don't understand it. And that comes from both sides. I mean, an executive is not going to say, I don't understand technical debt, just like a programmer is not going to necessarily say they don't understand EBITDA. And so when you're sitting in the middle and you're translating that stuff, people see that you're being honest and straightforward. Um, they can correct you if they want to. You translate something, <laughs> some term, and they go, well, yeah, that's not exactly what it is. They can, they can straighten that out. Um, and so they feel like they're part of that. So you start earning that respect and be able to make that happen. They also respect you as a project manager because of the fact that you do understand both sides of the uh, problem. You may not understand how to solve some technical problem. You may not understand how to uh, increase uh, all the actions that are going to increase the earnings per share or something like that. But they do respect the fact that you understand what the concept is and that you're understanding that you are part of that. There's an interesting factor that also goes on in that, and that is that the person, especially the technical people, uh, or lower level people in the company they don't have to be technical. They can be, this can happen in any project. The people who are lower level down in the organization generally don't understand how what they're working on specifically benefits the company. And so now all of a sudden they're starting to see that connection. And quite often I'll see them come up with a different idea and say, well, then why are we doing it this way? Why don't we do it another way? Because if we did it this way, then you actually get 
two of these problems solved instead of the way you told me to solve it, which is not necessarily the best way to solve it. So there's really quite a few things that can go on. Usually there's, this takes a couple of weeks to get things kind of moving because you have to, so let's back up a second. You got to remember, I come into projects that are in general in real trouble and they're failing. So there's, there's, it's not just, there's no respect. There's distrust. <laughs> People are finger pointing and they're blaming one another. So I have to kill that. And quite often I do that by starting not with the project team that I'm assigned to manage, but with the customer or executive in trying to understand what their problems are. Because if I can get them to understand some trust and get, gain some trust in the team, then I can get the team to do something to earn more trust and, it, and I start getting a snowball effect, right? But I'll work with both teams for maybe a couple of days by themselves. Then I'll start doing merge meetings where I am trying to attack some of these problems uh, in more of a forum than me doing shuttle diplomacy. Um, so it takes some time. It doesn't take a huge amount of time, but there's a real process that you can go through to build that respect um, and minimal viable product or um, just trying to get somebody to from a technical team to deliver a demo of even the simplest thing to show that there's progress um, is huge um, i mean i was a uh, an advocate of agile long before it had that name uh, back in the in the late nineties and early thousands, I was mm -hmm. continually saying, okay, let's get, just give me three weeks to get you something and I'll show you what it looks like. And then I work with the team and say, okay, let's get a, let's get a prototype up. Let's get something, a wireframe. I don't care what it is. Give me something that we can demo to show them how things work. There doesn't have to be anything behind it, just that front end. And then we'll help them work through getting the back end stuff done. And I got a lot of pushback for that. People on both sides would come back and say, well, wait a minute, this is useless. No, the, we're trying to build trust and respect. The product may be useless, may just be hollow, but it's something they can see and touch and feel. And that's where most customers have problems in technical projects is they want something they can see and touch and feel. That's why Agile is so valuable. Well, it does make sense. Uh, but I, I want to get back a little bit to you, to, to the phrase you, uh, to, to something you said about resolving the problem when there is no respect. And I, remind, I remember a situation where I was in the project and we lost a project manager. So he just quit and, you know, he was hired by another company. And we got another person, another dude who became project manager. But we love the previous guy. We, we, we've been working with him for over a year. So we loved the management style he had. He had enough respect from us. And the new guy didn't have anything. Not disrespect, but not respect as well. So there was nothing. We didn't know him. So I remember how he started to build that respect. And it was mostly through sort of authoritative management. So he, was, he started to, you know, to tell us what to do in a very, mm. in a very direct way. And, and then and now I want to ask you to compare there are two styles of management. I know there is a management by respect, so-called, but there's another management style, which is more, 
you know, from, you know, which we inherited from the military, where people just being told what to do and there is no need of respect. I already have the respect since I'm a manager. So there are two different styles of management. So what do you think? Should we, which one should be applied when there is no respect so far and it has to be earned? <coughs> well, I'm not much for management. I'm a little more along the leadership style. So the directive authoritative style of management or leadership for that matter is something I shy away from except for very specific cases. From what you just described, I'm, I'm surprised it worked if it did because generally if a team is moving along and there was respect and there aren't major problems, which I'm from the way you described it, it didn't sound like there were major problems coming in with an authoritative directive style generally doesn't work. You want to come in and be much more associative, meaning that you're saying, okay, I have this team that does great. This team does great. This team does great. And this team does great. How let's assess them and figure out and ask from them, get information from them on where the holes are and where I can come in and help fill and move forward. That would be my approach. And of course we're talking about styles at this point. Um, if something were to go wrong. So like I say, I come in quite a few times to projects that are in trouble I generally do start out in very directive mode in those because there are things that have to be fixed. There are major problems. I figure out what those problems are. I generally hire to fix, you know, three things. There's usually 20, but I'll go and start attacking those three things. And I do become very directive in that situation. That lasts for maybe four or six weeks if, uh, if need be. Because what I want to do is get into that directive situation to solve the problem, figure out who can handle those problems, and then hand that issue off to them for them to fix and for me to support them fixing it. Um, think about a, uh, you walk into, or you're driving down the road and all of a sudden two cars collide ahead of you and you're the first one on the scene. You, you get to the accident scene. The very first thing you do is to look to make sure that there's, um, there's no fire. You make sure that if there's no fire, then you make sure that you know, who's the worst person there that needs help. And you don't turn to the second person who shows up at the scene and say, hey, you know, I think it would be a good deal, a good idea to call the police and, and get some help here. You look at that person, you say, call the police. Okay, you give them a very, very directive order. You don't have a discussion about it. You tell them what to do. Right. As you move on, you start figuring out what the situation is. You, you have fires put out. You, maybe some help comes along. Maybe you stop the person from bleeding. You get people in a safe location. Now it might be a situation where you back off and, and ask for opinions. So if you're in a remote location, the uh, ambulances or police haven't showed up, you get everybody out of the car, everybody's kind of sitting off to the side of the road. You say, okay, um, we got two other people here. Uh, what do you think? Should we get these guys into a car? Should we move them or leave them sitting here? Which one do you think is, is safer for the person? And now you start soliciting information because you've got everyone kind of in a stable situation, right? So um, I, I think that walking into a, what you described as a stable situation, all of a sudden being directive um, would be, uh, would not be the best way to handle. I, I mean, I think it, I, I will go as far as say, I think it would blow up on you. I think that you would end up getting 
uh, pushed aside and say, well, who's this person and why, why does he or she think that, that she or he could tell me what to do? <laughs> We've been running just fine. Um, and I've seen that happen in quite a few places where new bosses come in and they start trying to levy their method on top of things. Um, you have to come in a little softer than that into a situation that's running well. Well, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what happened. We lost like 30% of the team after that because the best people actually left. Some of them, you know, followed the, the previous project manager and just they, they were hired by the new company. Some of them just quit because they didn't like the new management style. But, you know, in, in the way they described what happened, they said we didn't like the manager. So they were not, you know, they were not uh, educated enough to explain that I like the previous management based on respect and now the management is based on power and I don't like it. That's why I quit. They just said, I don't like this, this dude. The previous one was better. So I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere else. So that will happen. But I can explain you why that new person was doing that as far as I understand. I never asked him that. But I think that he was afraid that the team, which was doing pretty fine, you said it right, the team was quite stable and it included quite senior and, and uh, experienced people which knew what they were doing for a few years. And he's coming as a stranger. So he, he had to somehow get the power into his hands. And in order to get that power, he understood that he can do it, he can earn the respect because of his uh, successful operations in the area of facilitation, in the area of successful projects. That will take like half a year. But he needs power because otherwise the power will be in the hands of the developers and then he will lose everything, including the respect. So that was like some, some kind of an urgent operation to get the power in the hands, maybe even at the cost of losing some, some part of the team. I think so. Yeah, but I don't think that works. I, I'll be really honest. You get far more power by me investing power into the team. If I can get my team to be powerful and I have my developers, my QA, my designers, all the different groups that I have. And I give them, I give them the power to be able to do things. I absorb that power. I end up being extremely powerful because I have a team that is extremely reactive or can react to situations. They are not reactive. That's the wrong word to use. They're able to react to situations. They are very predictive. They can see what's going on. They can sense the pulse. And um, we're, I now gain that power because as I go back, to the executives, the customers, whomever, and they say, oh my gosh, we made a mistake or we want to go this direction or whatever reason they want to change direction. I can go back to the team and say, okay, customers at it again. How can we do this? And the team with their power comes back and says, well, we could do this. We could do that. We could do this. We come up with four or five different options. We get everybody in a room and we solve it. And all of a sudden, the people who are the executives, the people with the money, the people who control the time and everything else go, wow, you are great. I love it. And I end up with this huge amount of power because I'm not trying to do the developer's job. And I am trying to leverage their power to give me the power that I need. Back to the very first thing you said was all that project managers want is on time and on budget. That's not really the 
project manager's shtick. That's really the customers and executives desire, right? That's what they want. And so what we're trying to do as project managers is facilitate that. If I now have the power to move that around, so, hey, that's going to take another week. And somebody says, well, if that's going to take another week, so be it. It's going to take another 10 grand. Okay, that's, guess what? That's what's going to take. If I can get to that point with the executives where we go back with a request and I can get more time, more money, however it is, then all of a sudden now to the team, I have an immense amount of power if I could do that because they don't ever see it, right? They don't see project managers doing that. Right. But if I try to take the power away from a developer who says we need to do it A, B, C, and say, well, no, I want it A, C, B, uh, I'm not going to gain respect, we're not going to move fast, and I'm just playing in the wrong trench. I need to play to the strengths of what I should be doing, which is trying to act as this facilitator to keep things moving forward and efficiently. I need to be a leader. I need to maybe be a, a stronger leader than the people who are supposed to be leading this in the executive realm. So that's, I get more power by having a powerful team uh, and, and by allocating that stuff out. If we're in an urgent situation, yes, I will definitely jump in. I'll be very, very directive. Um, you know, and tell people, you know, very draconian things like, I'm sorry, but you're not going to talk to the customer. It's only me who talks to the customer. Um, you know, <laughs> I just, I, I'll cut off communication just so I can get all the communication. So I know what's being said. So I don't have my team being drugged around. Um, so I'll do very, very directive things initially, but those don't last very long. I pull them off real fast. I'm just trying to get a handle of what's going on. I would never do that in a situation where the project is running well. Never. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. But uh, I think we're, we're understanding the word power from different angles. What I mean by power is, is sort of a, uh, is sort of a, what do you call it? Like the way you can rely on your people. Like in your example about who's talking to the customer. When the new manager joins the team, he doesn't know what's going to happen with these people and how and where they are ready to betray him. I, I'm using this word, you know, maybe it's too strong, but still it may happen. So mm -hmm. sometimes you, you, you join the team and you say, Hey guys, I'm your new manager. My goal is to make the team successful, blah, blah, blah. But there are 50% of people who hate you personally because they don't know you and they are ready to betray you in any possible way. They are ready, for example, to go around you and talk to the customer because they know that customer and you don't know the customer yet. So they just go there and say something, maybe subconsciously, but something wrong and bad about you, which will seriously damage and jeopardize your position in the company. And then tomorrow you will be fired by your upper management for, for the reasons you didn't, you didn't even expect because your people were not under your control. Your people didn't trust you. Your people didn't even expect you know, to trust you because they didn't know you. They never, they, never, they never wanted to be loyal to you. So they may do things which will, which will damage your, your personal position. And that's why, maybe, I think so, that's why the manager I had, that example, wanted to get the control over the team and he was ready to lose some people, even good programmers, even good developers. But those people were not loyal to him and he wasn't able to rely on them. And that's why he started to do this directive authoritative management style. So, okay, so you're talking about situation, now that I understand what you're saying here, I think a little bit better. You're talking about 
what I would call subversion. And that is where someone on the team is, is intentionally trying to um, subvert what you're doing and, and go around behind your back. And, and that is a different situation. So if I find out about any of that, then I become very directive with that person. That's a situation that has to be solved. If uh, one of the problems I do have, and I have had numerous times, is the what I call the prima donna syndrome, where there's someone who is a developer who thinks that they are, um, that he or she is better than everyone else and needs to be the center of attention. And everything has to go through them. That is, that's the antithesis of a team that's actually destructive of a team. And if I see anybody who is doing uh, team destructive behavior, then they see a side of me that they probably really don't care to see because I'll be very, very uh, negative on that. I will do everything I can to shut that down, including um, in regards to who the person is, asking them to leave the team. There you I've go. taken, I've take, taken a couple of people that are truly destructive to the team and move them off the team. If they're destructive toward me, that's not necessarily uh, a reason to go after them because they'll destroy themselves. But if they're actually destroying the team and, and creating a situation where the team's not functioning as a team, uh, the group of people isn't functioning as a team, better said, uh, then I will actively work to get rid of them off. I'll get them off the project. Yes. There you go. That's what I wanted to hear. So it's not yeah. just, we cannot just be friends to everybody just because we want to be friends. We like no. to explain. Yeah, it's, it's case by case. Yeah. No, there's, that's part of being a leader. And at the same time, let's, again, I don't want to just point at the project team, right? And the technical people, because I've also had, customers and executives be in that same realm where they don't want, you know, I'll end up with a room of five stakeholders and I've got four who want the project and another one who wants to kill the project. And they're adamant about killing the project. Um, they're derogatory toward people. And I will do whatever I can to get their themselves removed from the project um, if, if needed, right? There's always times whenever you want to have somebody who has an opposing view on the team because they can keep things in check. They can be bringing a level of reality. But if those people are turning around and being negative to people, doing personal attacks of the team members, I'll work to get them removed from the team. And I've gone three or four levels above me to get people removed from the stakeholder team that were, um, negative in a negative way, if that makes sense. You know, there's, there's a way to say no and not say, hey, it's all your fault um, and finger pointing. There's, there's a way to do that um, and say no and be constructive at the same time. And I don't mind that. But if people are being destructive from the executive ranks, then I will turn around and do what I can to, to quelch that uh, and get, get rid of that as quickly as possible. It sounds like it's a very thin line and a gray area between somebody being negative and ready to, to be fired and somebody who is just trying 
to, to respect you more and trying to trust you more. But in order to do that, he needs more, he needs to challenge you a little bit more. So he needs more information, more, see more results of you because he doesn't know you yet. So he's trying to, but how do you define this? You know, how, where's the border between somebody who is definitely has to be discharged and somebody who is just trying to understand who is who. And that's why asking questions, including negative questions, including challenging questions. I don't know if you can define a specific line and say, if you say is versus was that all of a sudden that makes it that way. It's a continued behavior. Um, you know, there are people who are truly destructive. I mean, I've had a couple of situations where I'm dealing with somebody who's truly destructive and they destroy themselves either because of the fact that they make someone else mad and someone else says, okay, you're out of here or they leave the company or the organization and, and move on, which is fine with me. There are other people who just have personalities that are, uh, that are rough and you just work with that person and say, I know you're trying to do the right thing and I can see what you're trying to do, but, can you be a little softer about it? And you may have to work with people to try to soften those, you know, how those people interact. Um, Sometimes you maybe have to kind of push them out of some of the meetings so that they don't ruffle feathers in the meetings. There's, there's a slew of different things that you can do um, to make that happen. I prefer trying to keep people in the meetings and try to keep them active and try to get them to, to bring their tone down um, and and make it change. But there is a line that I cannot define. There's a line that if you cross that, um, you know, repeated negative statements, statements behind people's backs, that's a big one. If you start making statements behind people's backs, then, then you know, it doesn't take long before I start um, working to to find an alternate solution <laughs> and, right. and get rid of it, right? Yeah. Um, because that's just destructive to the team. The minute I have team members, you know, three or four team members coming back up and saying to me, hey, I can't work with this person, then why is that person on the team? You know, I I totally agree. And, you know, I've read some statistics about why startups and IT projects and software projects fail. And one of the reasons... One of the top reasons is uh, personal conflicts between people, between, including between programmers. So if you look at the team, let's forget about the trust to the project manager, but let's think about trust between team members, between programmers, for example, respect, not the trust, respect. Uh, so let's say you're a manager and you see the problem. You see that one person doesn't go along with another person, even though they're good programmers, both of them. They, they do a good job. They work. They produce good results. They're technically competent. But they, they have just different personalities and they constantly fight in the office. And because of that, the whole office is constantly in stress. So what do you do? And maybe you can give some examples. Well, so, uh, you know, in those situations, you sit down and talk with people and say, hey, knock it off. I, I think that whenever you make a move to remove somebody from a project quite often you end up gaining more respect from other people than you would than you would expect so uh an example i did have a person who was fairly well respected when i first came onto the project 
and people always talked about this person. This person, um, this is a number of years ago, so I'll, I'll, let me make up a name here. Um, we'll call this person Sean, okay? And people would look at this person and say Sean was a, uh, a team player. He did things for people. He, you know, there's a variety of things, and they always talk fairly positive about him. And I kept seeing things that weren't quite in line with that. And I would get a lot of pushback from him, a lot of negative, and I'd start hearing undercurrents. And before too long, I ended up finding that he would do favors for people depending on where they worked and what they did. And those favors were all of a sudden really kind of making other people on the team upset. So maybe he'd open a port in a firewall for somebody so they could watch something on their computer that nobody else could watch. <laughs> they would um, order stuff. I, in fact, I actually had a PO, this is the one that tipped the case on this one, is I actually got a, a purchase order across my desk and the part number and the description didn't quite make sense to me. So I called up the vendor and found out that he had changed the description of the part he was buying so that it would look more suitable for the company, but he was really buying something that was significantly different than what was on the purchase order. Uh, the description was just changed to make it go through the system better. And I got rid of that person and I got rid of him very quickly. And the minute I did, I had about 10 people come back to me and say, thank you. He was destructive. He yeah. was, his, even though on the outside, he looked very positive. He got along with everybody. Because of the favoritism in this way he would trade things back and forth, um, nobody trusted that he would do the right thing. But they weren't going to say that because everybody else said, oh, what a nice guy he was. And so all of a sudden, getting rid of him and he's gone, I had a whole bunch of people come back to me and say, wow, it's so much easier to work here now because I don't have to worry about him stabbing me in the back. <laughs> I was really quite surprised. I thought I was going to get a reaction in totally the opposite direction. Um, another one I had a... Uh, a very highly specialized developer working with one tool that everyone said, oh, this is the only person who could ever do this tool. And this person was, was nothing but argumentative. Every time we were in a meeting, he would tell the customer they were wrong. He wouldn't uh, compromise. He was always very stern. And finally, I had to let him go. And what I found out is the minute I let him go is that I had five other people in the organization. Each of them knew about 25% of what this guy knew. And all I had to do now, instead of giving him the specific task of working with this product, I would just break it up between these five people. And they had all the experience I needed to cover that. Okay. And now all of a sudden I took those people and basically raised them up a notch because they were all working with this product, which they wanted to work with anyway. But this guy was always sitting on top of it saying, no, this is my territory. You can't have it. And he, this is the prima donna complex. And so he, he was 
artificially making himself the prima donna by verbally shutting down anybody else on what they had to talk about, what they had to say. And once I got these four people together to actually, um, or five people together to actually cover that area, it moved a lot faster because there was a lot more conversation. People started talking back and forth about, well, if we do this, what'll happen? If we do that, what'll happen? And we ended up with um, a better solution because it was better thought out and more integrated. It was a very, very much better solution. And people were, a lot of people were upset with me whenever I got rid of that person. Um, and then it, it took about a month and a half or two months. And finally people said, that's the best thing that ever happened to this project because we, it made us a team. It, it made a stronger product. It moved things, it moved things forward. So it, it, it sounds like you know, letting people go is a good recipe to er, to earn respect with the team, isn't it? <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I, I, um, I don't think it's a tool to earn respect. I mean, I don't go in and say, hey, let's get rid of somebody so they'll respect me. That is definitely not the direction I go. Um, I, I go in there and say, if there's a rotten apple in here, we need to get rid of the rotten apple. Um, but um, I, you know, I, I would not prescribe that as a tool for everybody to use every time they walk into, a, a, you know, a, a project is to fire two people. That <laughs> that won't get you very far very yeah. quick, right? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I don't always do that. Those are those are a couple of examples over time. What I want to stress though is that. There's a lot of consternation when you do get rid of someone, especially if you think that there's a highly specialized person, that you know the whole project's going to fall apart, and that's not necessarily the outcome. I've never had a project fall apart because I've gotten rid of somebody or somebody has left. Um, I have, I have generally the team has gotten stronger when that's happened, though. Um, even when somebody leaves on their own, I mean, we've had to struggle a little bit, but then that gives people uh, a rallying point. They come back and they say, okay, Susie's left. She was the only one who knew how this specific aspect worked. How are we going to cover that? And sometimes we end up bringing in a, a contractor to help, or sometimes we end up saying, hey, we can backfill with our existing people and we'll rely on them. And they come to the rescue. And when you say, hey, can you, can you help me? Can you solve this problem? and you put trust in someone, you make yourself vulnerable that if this fails, I'm going to look like crap, um, and can you help me out? Uh, you earn respect pretty quick that way, okay? Because people realize that you trust them, okay? And you don't get trust unless, in my opinion, you don't get trust unless you trust somebody first. Yeah, that makes sense. And let me get back to the prima donna problem, which you mentioned a few times. Mm -hmm. What do you think... Well, again, let me try to blame. So who do you blame for that? The managers or those prima donna people who are just by design prima donnas? So who makes the mistake and that happens? Well, it's, there's two different realms. I think most of the time it's the person and the person gets too big on themselves. They think too much and that they're too valuable. Um, I think that's probably most of the time. But I have been in at least two organizations where that was 
required by management and management fostered that, uh, that if you weren't specialized in something that you weren't valuable, people got raises based on how they were specialized. They got uh, recognition in various ways, shapes and form because they were so highly specialized um, that they could, you know, do whatever needed to be done. Um, and it was the management that actually created that whole concept um, and and drive. And that that was that was not good. That was that was probably the hardest organization to work in, where everybody was pitted against, or two organizations, one of them was worse than the other, where everyone was basically pitted against one another. And, and they were supposed to compete with each other, which was obviously it's not a team. You're trying to show that I'm better at this than the next person. Um, I mean, we had two projects running in parallel, building the same product with two different sets of tools. And whoever made the best tool won, so to speak, using the same shared resources in IT. And so IT is all of a sudden torn because they have two requests to do two opposite things or, you know, you're vying for people. It was a really ugly situation and everyone became very highly specialized and nobody talked to one another. It was, it was ugly. That was, that was a very challenging company, a startup, which by the way, didn't succeed. <laughs> yeah. so, it's, so it sounds like the company, the management, the top management of the company, uh, according to your words, and according to my experience, I totally agree with that. They are shooting themselves in the foot because they are on one side, they want people to be super skilled, very specialized, and they reward them for that, for knowing yes. something that nobody else knows. And then in the end, those prima donnas become a problem for a company and they get, in the best case, they get fired. In the worst case, they cause some troubles for the company before they get fired. Yes. Yeah. And you breed your own problem. And this is not just a way in our, you know, in a business or two businesses, go out and take a look at any advice board out there. <clears throat> you know, even going to college and you go to school, people say specialize, 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 you know, don't just specialize in, in, um, a software product, specialize in a specific aspect of that software product. Um, don't, you know, I mean, and, and the more specialized you are, the more valuable you are. And so people become so narrow and extremely deep, but so narrow that I think people start losing um, the picture of what they're really trying to get done. And this is a, this is a bigger problem than project management. It's a bigger project problem than software development. This is a problem in our businesses where people are really becoming very, very super specialized and can't see past their little walls. And so you end up with people building the wrong thing or not understanding where the project is, where the project or the company is going. And what is the solution? How would well, you in my opinion, yeah. in my solution, this is, this is very self-serving, is be, being more of a generalist. Because if you listen to what I just have been saying in here, it's one of the things that I do as a project manager. I don't just manage IT projects. I manage IT projects. I manage software, uh, um, pr new product development, you know, physical new product development. I've actually been over in, the, in managing marketing projects, a whole slew of different projects. I'm more of a generalist, right? And I understand how this whole breadth of things work 
in a variety of different situations. So through that generalization, that's where I've been able to make my niche, right? So like I say, it's a bit of a self-serving statement. I find that that's very, very important. I think that people need to be specialized in an area, but they need to be also broad. So be uh, three or four inches deep, a mile wide in everything, and then take something that's three inches wide and go a mile deep. Um, but you better have that broader understanding of what's going on. Um, you know, that's, that's an issue. Um, the attitude that I'm the best at something and no one else can do it, I think is destructive for our companies, our teams, and is not, is not the right direction to go. But, um, especially here in North America, I can't speak too much outside of North America. I haven't been doing international projects for about 10, 15 years. Um, it's, it's hard for people to do that in today's society. It's very me oriented. Yeah. Sounds like, sounds like there is no like obvious solution for uh, a programmer who is a, uh, if I'm a programmer, I'm trying to like think about my real experience, real examples. And I, I remember where people were companies and my employers, they were trying to turn me into a prima donna. They were trying to give me a very narrow niche where I'm supposed to be the extra, you know, the extremely specialized and skilled person just in one niche, which potentially could lead to, to turning me into uh, a non-replaceable resource of the company. And what would you recommend to a programmer to do in that case? Is it like the, the right way to ask to be moved to another project or give me more tasks or what to do? So, you know, as programmers, I, I, so far I haven't met too many programmers who have stuck with one tool and never moved off that tool. Okay. There are some COBOL programmers out there who are making millions right now because of the fact that that's all they know and they know it very well. Um, but those are more rare. I mean, most people have worked their way up to various programming languages and they know a series of them. They may know one better than another, uh, but there's something new that comes out and they move off to that and they kind of move around and, and learn and experience new things. And I think they understand the power of that. So I think, I, I, in my experience, I think most programmers, technical people in general, know and love this idea of new things coming out and understand how to crack open the box, understand how it works, and really dive in and understand how that tool works. I think the harder problem for that developer is to see outside of that box, <clears throat> and I think it's true for all of us, to see outside of our boxes and see what's really going on with the organization. Even me as a project manager, I mean, I used to be a developer and, you know, wrote in C and C++ and Java and all that stuff. And, and as I moved into the ranks of being more managing those people and keeping away from the actual coding. What I found is there was this whole world of stuff I didn't know about. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, how did these pieces fit together? 
And I think that that's important for a developer is if I'm writing some app, okay, for a phone, for a computer, for whatever, just a module, okay, even software for a router, whatever it is, how does that actually play into the bigger picture, into the, into the world of, of business? And what's that get, what, how does that actually get to earnings? How does that actually get to my paycheck? How does that actually make life better? And so if people start stepping up to that level and understanding that, I think that's pretty important. I think that's also an argument that if they want to move on and move around, that's the argument you make to the executives who are saying, I want you to specialize, 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 is, you know, I would be better if I knew more about how everything works, okay? Um, I had an experience uh, a number of years ago I've written about, it was about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 12, 12 years ago, um, that I've written about a fair amount. And that's whenever my wife had some medical problems and uh, took her to the hospital and they said she had a heart attack, was having a heart attack. And there was a series of things that indicated that there was more going on. But the minute she got labeled as having a heart attack, we got a specialist called a cardiologist come in and that cardiologist sat on top of her and you know, took care of everything. And I kept trying to tell him that there was other stuff going on. And he kept saying, no, that's not possible. You know, I am the heart doctor. I know what's going on. I said, but when you did this, this other thing happened. Nope, that can't happen. That just doesn't make sense. Well, the problem was that he was overlooking the fact that simultaneously or very close to simultaneously with a week of having a heart attack, she had had a stroke. And so what he was looking at was the heart and he was not the type of person who would be looking at the, uh, uh, for a cerebral stroke. And so what we had to do there is bring in another specialist to do the cerebral thing. And then we had to bring in another specialist who did the vascular thing. And by the time we got everybody involved that had to handle that, which were those three people, then I had to sit again as a project manager, so to speak, in the middle of that, trying to get these three people to talk to one another because they were so focused on their little aspect of the human body that they couldn't see that there was an actual person there. They didn't see it at all. And um, that was the key to my wife still being alive and in the other room is that we were able to get people to look at that integrated system um, by just looking at one piece, you're missing what's going on everywhere else. Is this, is this relevant? It's a really good example. Is it relevant to project managers as well or only programmers? Have you seen? No, no, no. It's relevant to, it is, it's, a, it's as relevant to a project manager as it is to a developer. Okay. Uh -huh. Because a project manager is running one project, that project, or maybe two projects or three projects, but let's take the extreme and say they're running one project. How do they know where their project sits in the importance of the overall scheme? I may be working on a, on a project that is going to bring in uh, 500 customers to a company. And so from my standpoint, I go, wow, this is going to bring in 500 paying customers. This is just fantastic. And so I'm working on that project. It's leading edge. It's, it's using the, the neatest and greatest tools. Everything's just the, the, the cat's pajamas in this thing. I mean, it's just, it is the sexiest project in the world. And all of a sudden, its priority gets bumped, and it's, it's way down the list. 
And I'm going, why? Well, come to find out, maybe there's another project that is a compliance project. And we all love compliance projects, right? It means we have to comply with some federal regulation or some customer's new EDI uh, needs or whatever. And this, this low-tech, ridiculous, why are we doing this project is all of a sudden taken priority of mine. That's because it's a compliance project. If I don't comply with that, I will lose a segment of my business, right? So the project manager needs to see all the projects, how they all fit together. So whenever someone comes to them and says, hey, I need a resource of yours, I need some time, that you're able to actually say, okay, where am I on the priority list? How can I fit in? How can I help so that I can make things work better. Maybe there's a point where even you as a project manager needs to say, hey, there's 20 other projects going on. They're higher priority than mine. Why are we doing mine? Why don't we put this on hold for a little bit, take my resources, get those other projects done, and then we'll come back to this project in six months. That I, I've actually done that on a project. And it, was, it came as quite a shock that, pe that people heard me say that. But then when they got done, they go, that makes perfect sense. And so we did just that. We took my team, we dispersed them on the other projects, we got the other projects done. Six months later, we started up my project again and boom, we got it all done. But we would have just lumbered along and everything would have gone slower had we not done that. And so as a project manager, we need to see even more about what's going on in the company and how things are working, how everything fits together so that we know where we fit in that machine. So that's, that's a very, very important concept for both programmers, developers, anybody like that, and project managers. Sounds reasonable to me. And my last question to you, a little bit personal. Do you love to be project manager or just doing it because it pays? Um, I love it. <laughs> you know why, why I'm because in our industry in the software business in, in most cases in the majority of cases people become project managers just because they were successful programmers they were experienced they were on the uh, you know they were in successful projects and then then one time the management suggests them and offers them to become a lead of the group or a manager and then a higher manager so they just happen to become managers they never dreamed Correct. about they just called an accidental project manager. Accident, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I'm asking. So what do you think about yourself, first of all? What's your position? And what would you recommend in general for those situations? Should people accept those offers and say, okay, I was a Java developer. I'm a good person. Why not? Or maybe we should clearly segregate those two professions. Programming is programming. Management is management. So um, I am an accidental project manager. So I never, you know, I don't have a degree in project management. You can get you know, your bachelor's and I think you can get a PhD in project management now. Um, and I'm, I'm come up from the ranks of, hey, I'm developer in this project and I'm telling everybody what to do. All of a sudden I'm the lead and I'm telling everybody what to do. And all of a sudden I'm the manager of everybody and I'm telling them what to do. And I just, I don't even remember moving up the ranks and doing that. It just happened. I just started getting more and more people coming to me and all of a sudden I am this de facto project manager and had no clue of what I was doing. Um, I liked the idea that I had, um, that I could organize things and get the organization and the, and together to make it so we could get the complete product out. And that was a really exciting thing. And, it, and that's what really got me into project management. 
the second project that I was also in the project manager on, <clears throat> um, slightly different story. Um, then I realized because I didn't earn my way to the top, I was put at the top that I didn't have the respect. <laughs> I didn't know how to deal with people. I was still dealing with, um, dealing with this on a very mechanical code like manner. And why wouldn't somebody do that? I, I wouldn't, didn't understand. And I did not have the grasp of how to deal with people <clears throat> that I needed. So if someone is in the midst of getting into that mode of moving up, <clears throat> it's kind of, I guess the question would be, as you're a developer, you're kind of in control of your own little planet and you create a problem or you run into an issue where two things don't talk to one another correctly or something's not behaving the way they want to, it's up to you to solve it. And what you're dealing with <clears throat> is a piece of software that you're fighting with, okay? And you're trying to make that piece of software do what you want it to do. That's very different than when all of a sudden, because the software really doesn't talk back. <laughs> and it's really different than whenever you're all of a sudden dealing with a person and that person doesn't do what you want them to do. Now you have to use a completely different style, right? And so it's not just a, here's the programming syntax or whatever. Now it's a, a, a style you have to develop and nurture various styles and strategies so that you can get people to do what you want them to do as if they wanted to do it to begin with. And that's, that's a challenge. So if you're getting into that realm, you have to say, who do I like better? Do I like, be do I like software better or do I like people better? Am I a people person? Do I get along with people? Do I, you know, do I feel that I have a knack to be able to get people to do what I want them to do? Do, uh, do I mind it whenever the people that come to me are acting more like kids than they are adults? And does that annoy me? Because if it does, <laughs> I'm not going to be good at this. <laughs> okay. Right. And so there's a, you have to ask yourself that question. How much of a people person am I? Um, and try it out. If you don't like it, don't be ashamed to step back into my role as a project, as a programmer and love it, okay? Um, but be open about it. If your manager comes and say, hey, I'll try it out, but you know, um, if I don't like it, I want my old job back. And don't feel like you're being downgraded. Feel like you've made the right decision in your life. Sounds like a very good advice. I thank you very much. We, we, we spent all our time for today and it was really just a conversation. Thanks. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.